this is the Feed to Embiid podcast uh, that I typically host. I would be the host, Austin Krell. This is my good pal, Brock Landis, uh, who has... He, he has he, he's launched this the stream yard that I didn't even know he had and he's become an, an internet sensation Come uh, on, bro. so so I, I I'm just tagging along for the ride I'm also hosting I, I don't know what's exactly going on here I like it's it a two-man game brother it's a two-man game I like the spontaneity of it Brock <clears throat> so you know we've had like a week and change to digest what happened in this series um Doc Rivers is fired, of course. Uh, that comes down, you know, Tuesday. Uh, at, you know, and then 24 hours later, Daryl Morey is speaking to local reporters and whatnot about the decision to fire Doc Rivers. We will get into your film in, in one moment. But okay, he said, he said, hold up, go ahead. I do think that this, like, like this series came down to basically two stretches it was game six the fourth quarter last five minutes and game seven the third quarter those moments are why doc rivers is not here why the sixers are not in the conference finals doing whatever they would be doing against the miami heat who knows um and that is that is why uh you know it this season that had such high expectations ended with another second round uh, departure, that doesn't to, to me. You know, everyone wants everyone. It is a failure, no doubt about it. It is a failure. This is not Giannis territory. This is a failure. Um, it's a step to success, brother. Whatever you want to call it, sure. Uh, but I do think that the, the, them losing the way that they lost does not take away from the fact that this team was different for the most part this season than teams of the past. Um, and you know, I don't know where you stood on the firing of Doc. I didn't think it was his fault, but I understood why when you go back and you uh, you you look at you know the the film of Game Six and Game Seven in the in the fourth quarter for Game Six. Um, do you want to take over the film now, or do you want me to elaborate a little bit more? It's up to you. So go ahead, talk about Doc, and then let's get into the film because we have to mourn. We have to get over that and and and, and discuss games one through seven. Talk about Doc real quick. So, uh, five and a half minutes to play. Joe Missoula, God rest his soul, wherever he ends up going with the Celtics, uh, whether that be the unemployment line after the series or, you know, back to a summer vacation and maybe some film and some coaching books for next season. Um Joe Mazzulla takes Robert Williams the third out of the game with five and a half minutes left to go in game six. He puts in Malcolm Brogdon. Ostensibly, he's trying to make the offense flow a little bit more easy without Robert Williams there to clog the thick, clog the paint up because defenders are not respecting him, right? Um, if you recall, that is an exact game plan the Sixers had the blueprint for when they lost to the Celtics by three in overtime. Sorry, not in overtime, in uh, in in February on the Jason Tatum three. They took Robert Williams out. Joel went to work on the block and almost won the Sixers the game by himself. They had the blueprint for how to for what to do in single coverage against uh, Al Horford and, and 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 you know a more traditional Celtics lineup. And instead, for five minutes, five and a half minutes straight, Joel gets one shot. One shot within the flow of the offense. There he is, standing idly, middle of the floor. No one looking to get him the ball. There's no – he's just a, a passenger to the offense and the team that he carried to – you know, that he helped carry to 54 wins and an MVP award. The Sixers got very good shots in that fourth quarter. I think for the game, they underperformed their shot quality by like 0.3 points, something like that. So they missed a lot of great looks. But I don't have a problem with that. You know, if you, if you miss open shots, that's no one's fault. It just happens. That's the way the game goes sometimes. Real hoopers like you and I would know. Oh, yeah, now, yeah. Most definitely, brother. So, so. <laughs> Real hoopers. So, where I find fault with Doc and where I think Doc lost his job 
is in that, okay, we're missing open shots, fine. What is the process to get us there? Oh, we're not even we're not even letting Joe touch the ball. He's not even for he's not even trying to, you know, catch the ball and we're not even trying to get him to leverage his gravity as a scorer and draw three defenders and kick it out. See, I have no problem with Joel passing the ball. That's the, that might be the right decision. There might be three guys on him. Find the open shooter. The problem is that you aren't running any of your offense through the guy that got you here in the first place. You are not running any of your offense through the guy that won MVP and averaged 33 points a game on 65% true shooting. <clears throat> that is why Doc Rivers doesn't have a job. Because when it came down to crunch time and to winning a series, there was no structure to get Joel Embiid, the guy who won the MVP award. The ever, the voters said it's the best player in the league this year. There was no getting him the ball. <laughs> he just sat idly as a passenger on the team <laughs> that he is the best player on. There was no timeout. Okay, what the hell are we doing? How about we run a pick and roll or how about we run a horn set or literally any play to get him a touch? And then let's see how Boston reacts to that. There was not enough of that. And instead, the Sixers, you know, it was Harden kicking out for threes. It was them trying to create, you know, shots for themselves. It was a dreck fest of epic proportions in their closing minutes of game six. They had a two-point lead with five minutes to go. That is why they didn't win the game. That is why Boston Celtics had new life. That is why it went to game seven and put them in a position where they fell victim to the Jason Tatum one in 25 games masterpiece that he had in that game. Yeah, you've been, you've been, you've been calling this about Tatum, that he'll shoot you into or out of a game. And Correct. Correct. In games six and seven, he was the unsung hero. But so Doc went down with, inconsistent. Go ahead. So Doc went down with the ship. He just didn't go down with the ship the right way. <laughs> now, I don't care if you miss shots. Never will care. They lose game six because Joel is missing shots or the guys are, are getting shots out of Joel making the right passes and just not going in. Okay, that's a basketball. It's whatever. That, it, you know, it sucks for the team. It sucks for the fans. Happens. Joel didn't touch the ball. Did not get a – got like one shot down the stretch. How does that – how do you let that happen? The guy that is – the, the the figure of the NBA that he is. And I think we can get, I think we can go deeper on the questions that Joel Embiid needs to be asked as well as the face of the franchise. Like, Hey, how come you didn't demand the ball more <laughs> down that stretch? How come you didn't assert yourself as a leader of the team? How come, uh, how, you know, we're, how come you were deferring to teammates and letting them take shots that, you know, instead of saying, Hey, I know you, you know, give me the ball. If, I'm, if you're open, I will find you. But for now, this has to go through me. Joel has a part in that. But Doc Rivers, the head coach of the basketball team, has to say, you know what? Time out. Let's, set, let's, let's run something here, set something up, and get Joel a touch so we can see how Boston reacts and if we can get a better look out of that. That is why I think they are home. That is why I think Doc Rivers is out of a job. Now let's look at the film and see if we could understand what happened on the court. A little bit, right? And I'm excited to do this with you, Krell, because, you know, you're at a, a lot of home games. You're around the game. You watch this. But in writing, I don't really get to hear your unfiltered opinion on what happens throughout a game. So let's start with some positives. Games one through four, the Sixers had their bread and butter, which is the two-man game. And a lot of the reason why is... A play like this, for example, high ball screen from Paul Reed. James just kind of manipulates his, his way to dictate a matchup into the defense. You see Tatum on the far side corner. No one really helps. Harden gets to a good spot, right? Now, serious on-ball pressure from Jalen Brown, but check out why it was able to be so smooth for the Sixers, right? You have Al Horford in drop. Rob Williams isn't on the floor. Now, the Celtics were comfortable doubling off of the corner. Let's check out the matchup in the far side corner. It's Jason Tatum matched up with PJ. And Tatum not really engaged off ball on this play. Harden's able to probe and then pass to Paul Reed for the bucket. A lot of this is just two-man game. And check out this play, right? Screen set by Embiid. He rolls Grant Williams. 
He's smaller than Rob Williams, not as imposing in the paint. He's the low man. He rotates over. That's not a problem for Embiid. Embiid can just rise up through the hell defense there. So they have their bread and butter. Now, again, no Rob Williams on the floor. This is why it was able to be so smooth for the Sixers. They could just get into the interior. And without Rob Williams, the low man, the help, wasn't really a problem. So Marcus Smart is on the corner. Tatum's on the wing. Brown's on ball. It changes the matchups around. Embiid sets the screen. Harden has a purpose getting to the basket. He drives. You can see Smart rotates over, but he's not a rim protector. Dump off to Embiid. Embiid just rises right up through Marcus Smart. Keep in mind, these are games one through four. Who's defending P.J. Tucker? Smart. Who's defending Maxi? Derek White. No Rob Williams. The matchup changes. Harding can get inside of the perimeter and get his, get his shot, simply put. Screen again, you have Rob Williams isolated on an island this time. He's not a help defender off ball. And what happens? Harden cooks him and gets to the rack, right? So the two-man was there, and it was there games one through four, and this is the backbone of the Sixers' offense. Again, no Rob Williams. Tatum doesn't really help off ball. Harden just gets an easy lay. Now, you agree that's the backbone of their offense, right? The two-man game. All season long, when they couldn't get a stop, they would just run the two-man game to keep up offensively until late game they were able to get some stops. The two-man was the backbone of their offense. And they were able to play comfortably without Rob Williams on the floor. So you've got Derek White on Harden, Jalen on Maxi, Horford on Embiid, Smart on PJ, Tatum on the far side wing. You make the entry, and then let's see what happens here. Let's see if you can notice anything, Krell. Boston's going to double, right? Which means Boston's got five within the perimeter. They send the double off of Maxi. He gives it to Maxi. Extra pass. No Rob Williams. Here's what I want you to notice. They get a favorable matchup. Marcus Smart against Tobias Harris, as opposed to Rob Williams on Tobias Harris, because he would be the defender there. So with this favorable matchup, Tobias pull up to a spot bucket. Now you're going to see a double here. First, you're going to see a down screen that switches the matchup. So Tobias is down low, and Tobias can just kind of box Derek White out of the way. Rob Williams would be the defender there. He'd be in the paint. He'd be the paint protector. Entry pass to Embiid. PJ's in the dunker. Rob Williams would be that player helping off of the dunker. Instead, it's Jalen Brown. Embiid gets a bucket in the paint. So what do you think watching that? Games one through four. What do you think watching that? So I do think there are inherent problems with PJ in the dunker or in the corner um, that I think... You, you know, no matter where you put him, if he's in that area, that vicinity, you're going to have a man on the on the on the on the weak side, and, you know, trying to uh, slide between the low man and the helper in, on the corner. I think with PJ, the adjustment to make is to move him out of that corner just temporarily, and basically say okay well if we're gonna have a we're gonna have a guy helping that far off in the corner and you know basically by the block what we're gonna do is we're gonna put one of our better shooters in the corner and put pj on the wing but we're gonna have that shooter be one of our ball handlers maybe it's tyrese and as soon as that ball goes to him we're gonna we're gonna or let's say he makes the extra pass to pj and a little bit on the wing that's gonna flow into a dho for the guy in the corner, it's the only thing to come around and get the ball, and then you're gonna you're gonna activate, you're gonna engage the weak side help the weak side helpers in that offensive possession, so that way they have to step up and do something. But you can't just let PJ be a, a passenger in the corner, sitting there, so that so that way the corner man the, the can become the low man and and help. There were also some spacing issues and some timing issues there. Like if Tyrese is making that entry pass or is nearby and Jalen Brown is on him, he has to immediately, uh, you know, get out of there. He has to get to the 
to, to, to the weak side corner and pull the helper away from the ball. Uh, there was not enough of that. There were some spacing issues. Like the other night, I'll give you an example. Um, the other night, they have uh, Anthony Davis and LeBron are, in, are, are running a pick and roll, and it gets AD a post up. Um, and LeBron's like is like literally within you know three or four steps from from him on the perimeter. LeBron is over six for over five from three in that game. They're not they're not gonna be worried about LeBron making threes. They're going to help on Anthony Davis and make that more difficult. LeBron has to know to cut out of the way and bring a helper away from that play. And then the next and then because then what happens is it's it's just a simple cut and replace. The next guy on this on the weak side comes up and fills in LeBron's spot, probably a better shooter. And that guy can't help as much because you have to worry about a shooter. So I think understanding the spacing is a lot of why the Sixers had to get away from the two-man game. But when it was functioning at a high level, when they were reading the floor well, when there wasn't as much congestion, they were cutting, they were like a hot knife cutting through butter. So that's a perfect segue into some of the more negative trends that you saw games one through four. And what you mentioned was PJ as a passenger in the corner. Now here's how that hurt their offense. And I like that you bring up, you make the adjustment, maybe put a shooter out there like Maxi, which can flow into a DHO if PJ was on the wing because he's no threat to dribble or drive. But Boston was able to crowd the paint. Right, Al Horford is defending P.J. Tucker on this play. That's his assignment. But they don't fear that corner, and it's a combination of both that and understanding and it's not going to make that pass. So play right there, double, he shoots out of a double, or at least he tries to. Jalen Brown is defending P.J. P.J. relocates to the corner because Brown's not afraid he doubles MB. Look, Brown is closer to Embiid than his assignment. P.J.'s left wide open. There's barely a contest. It's a late contest. And he misses. Marcus Smart is defending P.J. in the corner. Tobias drives. Smart helps on the drive. Tobias makes the right read. P.J. misses. Now, I don't want to paint P.J. as this detractor offensively. Like, he derailed their offense. He doesn't have the ball enough or do enough offensively to ruin their offense. But you saw this trend games one through four while they did have the two-man game and while they were able to play comfortably offensively where Boston didn't fear the three-point shot and that really hurt them which we'll see in game six and seven but you see possession after possession like Tatum is defending PJ in the corner instead he takes the hard and drive away the only option is to take what the defense gives a wide open three but PJ just can't make the defense respect him again and Beach trying to get post positioning against Marcus Smart, who he should have no problem against. Now, Beats like, Tobias, you got to move, brother. So Tobias, he flashes towards the high post, maybe stretch the defense out. Al Horford doubles on the Embiid post entry, and it leads to a turnover. Why? Watch, because watch Joel's body language. That the, corner. Joel's body language there. Terrible. Yeah, because he, he, he knows Tobias brought Jalen Brown into the picture and basically made it a three-on-one in the end zone at the end of the game. Like, I, like you, have, you, have, you, have a, you have a safety, you have two cornerbacks there. You're trying to throw me the ball there? Like, come on, what am I, I going to do there? I, I, I don't mind that Tobias really went high to maybe get a high-low look. He just went too late. Like, Embiid has to remind him. He's like, go flash high so we can get the ball to me, turnover, and now watch him. Come on, bro, flash. He's like, what are you doing, bro? And now, in addition to the Celtics doubling off the corner because they just didn't respect P.J. out there, Melton didn't really stretch the defense out from the corner, the Celtics played Rob Williams with the starters but off of the bench. They didn't start him games one through four for every game, but he did share the court with the starters situationally. And what you got were tremendous defensive possessions because of Rob Will. So this is a split action, a high-low look, and beating the high post Tobias with a favorable matchup down low. Rob Williams helps off of that corner watch. Tobias posts up. Rob Williams helps. He deters MB from making that pass. It leads to a turnover. Now you've got a two-man game. 
where Rob Williams stops the ball because Jalen Brown screened off a Harden. He's able to get out to the corner to contest the shot. PJ is no threat to dribble. That's an easy block for Rob Williams. Now, this is games one through four before he started. This was probably what Joe Mazzulla looked at, and he was like, we got to start Rob Will. Yo, where... Where was PJ going with that possession? Where was that going to end up? Uh, you know, I really just, I really just think that was. I have to see if that was a hot potato. That, that was an unbelievable possession. It, 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 I mean, oh is eight seconds of the clock a hot potato? Let's see when he got the ball. So look, two man game. Brown screened off of him. Rob will steps up to you stop the ball. Two on the ball. You're two on the ball. So the ball, this is, this is how much space he has. It's taking what the defense gives you, right? He catches the ball with 11 seconds. He's not, really, he's not really in a shooter stance. Uh, and, and, you know, Rob Williams, he's long, he's athletic, so he could cover some ground. He gets out there. You know, PJ, this isn't a hot potato, 10 seconds, but he's trying to attack the closeout, and he creates no separation, gets blocked, and then Boston retains the possession. I'll tell you what. I'll tell you what. He was better off in that play. Just catching the ball and then stepping sure. out. Again. No, stepping yeah, out. I mean, that was it's was, better to get blocked on the three ball than it is doing that because he had time to gather and shoot. Even then, if, right your, if your options were, I'm going to take Rob Williams off the dribble or step out of bounds, I'm just going to step out of bounds because I'm not going to give Boston a live ball opportunity. So this is game three, and you could just see how disruptive Rob Williams is, right? So they've got Al Horford and Rob Williams in the paint, just keeping things crowded. And this is inevitably what hurt them in six and seven. And Bede sets the screen. Harden doesn't have much to work with, right? Al Horford's the big in coverage here. But even if he gets past Al Horford, how can he get to a spot if Rob Williams is at that final level? And what Boston does here is they just zone up. So Derek White, you take Jalen and Max, you zone up. Rob Williams, just be disruptive. The drive gets cut off. Al Horford kind of funnels him into Rob Williams. Harden can't get deep. He really can't pull up here either because Rob Williams has length. And as a help defender, it's tricky to get a shot off against him as opposed to Marcus Smart or Derek White, whoever would be in the starting lineup instead of Rob Williams. Now, this wasn't when Williams started, but I show this because Missoula probably saw this or their coaching staff saw this and said, this is the adjustment we have to make. So Boston, you see him zoned up on the near side wing and corner. Harden's going to make the pass to Jalen. Rob Williams gets out to contest a shot, and it works in Boston's favor, keeping him there. Again, Embiid against the smaller guard. This is why the Sixers kind of struggled to make these post entries, because there were doubles off ball. That These are nuances you might not realize during the game, but something like this affects the post entry. So really, you've got Tobias with a mismatch against Malcolm Brogdon. You've got Embiid with a mismatch, although Grant Williams fronting him. But he's fronting him because he knows there's going to be help from somewhere. Rob Williams sees it. He's not afraid of Niang. He doubles. You can't make the post entry. Niang takes a shot at the top of the key, and it's a miss. So those were some trends. Doubling off of the corner, Rob Williams playing with the starters, or more specifically without Horford. Boston likes what they see on film, games one through four. But I think... The two-man game, because they were able to use it consist consistently because Rob Williams didn't start, kind of counteracted the bad trends, the bad offense. Now, where everything changes is game six. This is what swung the series because Boston starts Rob Williams. Now, take that with a grain of salt because even after starting Rob Williams, the Sixers, for the duration of the series, they weren't out-rebounded overwhelmingly. They weren't beat in transition. It wasn't like Missoula necessarily out-coached Doc for a whole series. It wasn't because Harden lost them the series. Granted, he may have lost them a game here or there, but he also won them too. It wasn't because Embiid did this or that. There were things the team as a collective could have done better, but they were in the driver's seat going back to Philly to defend home court Two games, you need to win one. You're defending home court. You put Boston away after you beat them on the road. Then you get five days to prepare for Miami. Who knows what would have happened against Miami? I think they match up with the Heat better than Boston does. 
At the same time, if a team is plus 18, 21, and plus 24 from beyond the arc, it's going to be hard to fuck with them either way because Miami just shoots the three ball. In a game like last night, Jimmy didn't even have to score. Situationally, sure, but you've got Gabe Vincent, Max Struess, Duncan Rod. Everyone's hitting a three. I think the Sixers do match up with them better than Boston. But the series came down to a five, six-minute stretch in the fourth quarter of game six where the Sixers just couldn't execute. You lose game six, you basically lost game seven. Now, there's still a chance to go into Boston and win game seven. It was a one-possession game at halftime. But what happened in the game last night with Miami and Boston happened with the Sixers game seven in Boston. They couldn't score more than 10 points. They rolled over and gave up. And, and, and they quit on their coach in the third quarter. So the Sixers had to wave the white flag, and it was not a competitive game past the six-minute mark in the third quarter of Game 7. You know, you know what's funny is Tobias hit a three to open the third quarter that gave that tied the game. So they were basically – it was it was knotted up 55, and then Boston goes on a, what, like a, a 35 to – Eight, seven. Something, something to run. Something like that. <laughs> and that was a great possession, too. That was Embiid patient. P.J. rolls to the basket. He hits P.J. P.J. draws help off the corner. Corner kick. Tobias hits the three. Uh, but they got punched, and, and Tatum was cooking them, bro. Tatum fried their defense. Melton was getting cooked. Maxi was getting cooked on an island. Embiid was getting cooked. Tatum fried their defense. You know, in, in, he was so hot that Mike Breen was calling his bangs before the ball even made the bat. Yeah, I mean, because he knew they were going in. They, they, they were good on the release. But let's look at some of why game six was a little more difficult for the Sixers than it should have been. Now, keep in mind, all things considered, they still had an opportunity to win this game. Fourth quarter, five minutes to go. They take the lead. I'm thinking all game, if they take the lead, they're good. Once they take the lead, they're good because they trail for most of this game. Uh, but Melton misses two key threes. P.J. misses a three in the corner. The execution was just bad. Just yucky, yucky offense. Yucky, yucky, yucky. but early, here's my Boston starts Rob Williams. He's defending P.J., You've got basically two bigs to pack the paint. If MB gets past out Horford, Horford funnels him into Rob Williams. Turnover, first possession of the game for James. Where's Rob here? On the screener, PJ. And you don't fear PJ and the dunkers, so you're able to help off of PJ and, and, and deter Maxi's shot on the drive. Similar possession here. DeAnthony's in the corner. Help off of the corner. Forced Maxi to take a floater. Maxi can't get that get that deep to get to a lay. This is all early offense, so it's it's messing with their rhythm. Maxi can't get to the basket. Harden can't get into a rhythm because he's just got to pass to the corner, which you saw more of in Game Seven. But this is six. This was Rob Williams' start. Where is he in the corner? I got the paint. Maxi gets into the paint. Look where he has to stop. Can't get to the basket because Rob Williams is there. Why? PJ's in the corner. We don't fear that. So he makes Maxie take a floater, and he's able to bother the shot. That's 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 a good possession for Boston. Maxie taking what? a floater as opposed what? to a lay is a good possession for Boston. The way that the timing on PJ's cut is such that Tatum is in the perfect spot where if Maxie tries to go to Tatum, I mean, if, if Tyree tries to pull up and go to, to Tobias, he might get picked off by Tatum and Tatum's already in front of uh, PJ, there was really nowhere for him to go. Right. Now you say, enter the ball to Embiid. Embiid's got to play in the paint. Embiid's got to take that, take that rock into the paint and be assertive, be the MVP. I agree. There were possessions when he was probably a little too passive, but look at what's happening. They're packing the paint. So Embiid can't go to his right. Because Jalen Brown's doubling off of we're not 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 doubling, but just giving Joe a look off a of Harden. That's not the problem. You take him beats right away, whatever. He can bully his way to the basket or turn his back on the low block, whatever. But Rob Williams is in the painted area, not really worried about PJ or that co corner. So he's just crowding Embiid's space, and Embiid has to settle. That was like the worst thing. 
you want Embiid doing there. You want him drawing a foul or getting to the basket into the paint, but he really couldn't because Rob Williams was crowding that painted area. Here's another possession where you saw this earlier, right? Jalen Brown doubled off of PJ and the dunker and beat had no problem. More length, more physical and bead loses the ball on the way up. Boston runs out and they get a bucket. So that's a bad little swing there. And that kept happening in game six, these swings. Harden gets into the paint, take what the defense gives corner kick melt misses. That's where the game got away from them in the fourth quarter. Melt missed two big threes. P.J. missed a shot. Bad late game execution from Embiid. You go to game seven, you basically lose when you lose game six in that fashion. When you have him on your court and you're in the driver's seat. Now, game seven, it was much of the same thing. Boston wasn't bold in. They didn't fear the corner. They made James Harden a driver and a passer. He couldn't really find his shot in the mid-range area because you have two bigs in the paint. And they took the Sixers' bread and butter away. They took that two-man game away. Early, one of the first looks for the Sixers. What happens? Two-man game, help off of the corner. And look at Horford. He just funnels him into the help. Rob Williams doesn't fear that shot. He's able to get over onto P.J. and P.J. airballs. Now, I know you're laughing, bro. I don't want to slander P.J. too much because he had... What was it, nine points or 11 points in the first quarter of game seven? Well, I actually think that James probably should have taken that shot. I agree. I think James probably could have gotten deeper and taken a lay. Uh, PJ hit the shots he needed to in the first quarter of game seven. I believe he had nine or 11 points. Yeah, he was their best offensive player to the quarter, quarter of the game. <laughs> but look at Rob Williams, just disruptive, right? Two-man game. Look how far he's helping off of Tobias. And this is where I have a problem with Harden. So Rob Williams is going to help off of the wing. Now watch this. James kind of looks him off. Harden could have gotten deeper. He kicks. He takes what the defense gives to him. And Tobias misses on the wing. I think if you're Harden, you got to get to your own shot. Because that opens the game up for everybody else. He didn't want to get to the rim. He was passing out to the open shot, which, okay, whatever. He's playing his point guard role. But how are you talking about you want the basketball freedom, the freedom to be yourself with a new coach when you have these opportunities to get deep, to get to a basket and and you're passing to the corner? Sure, you're taking what the defense gives, you're playing point, but they didn't need you to play point. Buddy, I don't think that's about basketball. (laughs) I don't think the freedom is about basketball. I'm sorry to tell you. Now, if you have film breakdowns of what I'm talking about, then we're going to be in a different territory. Of of course. (laughs) Post-entry, you've got Embiid isolated on one side of the floor. And who's crowding the painted area? Rob Williams. Look, now, now, and also, this is the difference between Embiid and Jokic. I don't want to make this an Embiid-Jokic thing. I keep saying that this postseason. But this is the key difference. You're facing up. Jokic reads this. As soon as Rob creeps... Where do you think this pass is going? Well, depend. I, I think it should go to Tobias, but either one of them, most likely the corner. But I, you'll see Tobias does some dumb shit on this play. Either one of them is fine. Well, because, because look, but because, because look, this is this is what happens with Jokic, right? Jokic makes the pass to the corner. Tatum helps. The pass goes to the wing. The extra pass goes to the wing. He makes the pass to the wing. Okay, Tatum gets out to the wing. The extra pass goes to the corner. It doesn't matter. If the defender, Rob Williams, who's doubling, is able to get out on that corner, or if Tatum's able to get out on the wing, Jokic follows the ball. He gets deep post positioning. They can make a deep entry, and it's a bucket. But instead, here's what happens. Rob shows double. Embiid turns his back to the double. So now, theoretically... There should be a two-on-one. All season, the Sixers have this corner shot, and then there's going to be like a a down screen, a back screen on Tatum, so he can't get out to the corner. And B takes two more dribbles than he probably has to, but this is because he's waiting for Tobias to set the screen, I believe. And instead of setting a normal screen, Tobias just sets an illegal screen, and it's a turnover. 
<laughs> That's your first possession out of the half. Your first or second possession out of the half. Now, for the listeners uh, at home, yes, um, you mentioned that Joel turned his back to the double team. Cardinal sin, you never turn your back to the double team because that means they're going to try to poke you on the blind side where you can't see, and then suddenly it's a live ball turnover in a strip. You never turn your back to the double team. What you do is you back up as much as you can with the dribble and then make the pass. you got to string them out and and draw guys out, and your teammates have to cut, which is a different story that they didn't do enough of. But you can't turn your back to the double team. That's something that Joel has done when he was younger all the time. That was why he was so turnover prone previously. And this game seven was the greatest regression to what he was in his youth as we've seen in the last three years. He has never looked worse in the last three years than he worked than he than he did in that uh, third quarter of game seven. The body language was pitiful. That's my one problem with Embiid. You know, I give him the benefit of the doubt not being able to play the same he played. The, now, minus nine points per game from 33 to 24, sure, that's that's due for criticism. You're not, you're not doing what you did in the regular season as effortlessly defense is key in on you differently language. If you're the leader, if the team runs through you, you get 20 shots a game. You're supposed to be the anchor offensively and defensively. Your body language has to be a bit better. You got to keep everybody on point. Whatever. As game seven progressed, it got further and further away from the Sixers. And here's what you had Harden doing all game. Two-man dish. Now Rob Williams is right there. Jalen Brown is right there. And B can't go to his left. He can't go to his right. Nobody's moving around the ball. And that's a turnover. Here's how it gets away from him. Turnovers. Harden's being passive. Bad body language. He gets to the basket. You would think he would go up with this, try to draw a foul, put this up. But he's intimidated. Here comes Rob. Take what the defense gives. PJ's wide open. You can't ask for a better shot. And he misses. So, Krell. So let me, let, me, let, let, let me see your face, brother. Let me get you back on cam. Yeah, that's right. That's right. That's right. <laughs> uh, the game was lost. Game seven was lost during that five, six minute stretch in game six, I believe. They still had an opportunity in game seven, but clearly in that third quarter, they were dismantled. You can look at something like the adjustment Joe Missoula makes to start Rob Williams as that's why the series swung. But all things considered, my brother, they were in the driver's seat. They had Boston coming back to Philly, up a game, and you've got to defend your home court. You've got two games to pack Boston up and get some rest before Miami. Uh, but ultimately, the Sixers couldn't execute. And they showed glimpses throughout the regular season late in the fourth quarter. They had some big wins. They grinded out wins against Utah, where Embiid hits a big shot late. Memphis and Bede comes up with a big shot late. Atlanta and Bede comes up with a big shot late. But in the regular season, these teams didn't take their bread and butter away. They didn't take the two-man game away. And when Boston did that one thing, when they took one thing away from the Sixers, the Sixers had nothing in response. And why is that? And 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 I think that's that's where the Doc Rivers firing comes into play. Got it. Because part of, part of the issue with the, with why he was gone was that when the two man game went away, they spent so much time hammering that with this with this homogenous offense all season long. Granted, it worked to a T because of how good they were and because of how good James and Joel are. But you can get away with that against the, the you know playing the Pistons three or four times, the Hornets three or four times, the. Rockets twice, you know, like those numbers can be inflated by playing dog shit in the NBA. Uh, they never had a counter for what to do or how to redirect their offensive identity if the two man game was taken away. And as soon as Rob Williams went back into that game and back at the end of the starting lineup, and the the pocket pass and the two man game was taken away, and there was no way to 
you know, connect the two sides of the floor and connect Joel and James, that was where everything fell apart. Now, granted, I will say this, the Sixers showed a lot of the same character they've showed all season fighting back from down 16, 17 points in game six and, you know, taking a lead in that game. But it was, you know, it, it, they had nothing when it mattered most. And it was because, uh, you know, the, the ball didn't get back to the best player. Like, how, I don't understand how you can go into an exit meeting as a head coach and explain, like, oh, yeah, we didn't run anything for the guy who won MVP of the league. And, you know, it's it's a deeper conversation to be had about Embiid's shortcomings as a passer or his trust in his teammates, his lack thereof, Harden being passive and his inconsistency from game to game. Listen, bro, if you come out, you drop 16, 17 buckets, you drop 45, and then in crucial games, you can't give me more than six buckets, you got a couple of turnovers, whatever, that tells me you're not locked in. If he was locked in, you don't have to give me 16 buckets every game. But if you're locked in, you got to replicate that impact somewhat in the playoffs, second round, do or die on a game to game basis. There was a lack of maxi and maxi shots, which the Sixers are dependent on maxi stretches and runs. So it's a deeper conversation to be had. But regardless, Doc gets fired and you have to move your focus to a new head coach. And the coaching search has consisted of MDA, Mike D'Antoni, Nick Nurse, Monty Williams. You know, five, six names have floated around. Uh, but of late, Nick Nurse seems to be the one with the most momentum. That's because the Sixers either have or they intend to meet with him. I'm not sure which of those two. But Krell, if I were to ask you, you have to make the decision on the Sixers' next head coach, who is your coach? Nick Nurse. And uh, why? So here's what I would say. I think from what I've gathered, from what I've heard, uh, I think, you know, Monty Williams is in good standing with them. I think they would like to have Nick Nurse as the preference. Um, I don't know that Joel would be all the way in on Nick Nurse at this moment in time. Um, but... You know, I think MDA, Mike D'Antoni, as you mentioned, is part of how you keep James here. If you do want James, which is another conversation in this whole thing. Um, I think I go with Nick Nurse because I think he's the most creative. Like he's throwing out box and ones and shit on defense. And he's, he's good with the X's and O's. And, and, and like I wrote, a, I wrote a column on this this weekend. The, like they've already had the culture guy. They've already had the accountability guy. That was Doc. Uh, there's a ceiling on what those guys can do because when it comes down to the second round and beyond, you need somebody who n doesn't even necessarily counter the counterpunch quickly, but is the one posing new questions to the opposition. The X's and O's guy, the tactician, the Eric Spolsters of the world are two steps ahead. So that's the guy that they need to be at the helm next. And I think the best candidate for that is Nick Nurse. I don't I, I, I don't want to see Budenholzer here. I, is he, I think really he's just nice. like a Doc Rivers. Um and I like Doc. I like Doc a lot. But there were, you know, there there were there were flaws, you know, behind behind you know some of the things that he did. I don't blame him for this series loss. I blame Joel first and foremost. And I blame, you know, and he comes and Doc comes up later, but I understand why he's out of the why he's out of the job. Um, I think Monty Williams does some interesting things on offense, particularly with Spain pick and roll. He loves Spain pick and roll in Phoenix. Um, He's got I think the tools he, to do so. Yeah, and I think Mike D'Antoni is an offensive creator, and he's very you know, and he's innovative. I know people don't like him; they say he's never won a championship. Well, guess what? <laughs> I mean, a lot of guys haven't won championships. Like he was, he was within like they needed to go all of twenty-seven from three in Game Seven against the Golden State Warriors 2018 for the Rockets to not win a title. Like people don't people forget they were a statistical anomaly away from that from from from, from winning a championship. So is he your assistant? Does Nick Nurse have to green light do they have to communicate? Because listen, I, I don't think I don't think MDA at 72 is going to come 
be I would be surprised if MDA at 72 came here and was like, yeah, I'll be an assistant. Like, he no, was the assistant for Brooklyn. No, what did he do after Brooklyn? Who was he with? He was a, he was a consultant. So, so my thing is, it seemed like Embiid had a good relationship with Doc, which rightfully so, the guy delivers your first MVP based on how the offense was operated. They ran through Embiid. He took 20 shots. Mm-hmm. He convinced Harden and everybody else to play their role to optimize their personnel. If you hire a Mike D'Antoni, what message does that send and how does he tweak the offense? Does that mean Harden now, instead of taking 14 shots, gets a healthier dose? He takes 20 shots and beat has to sacrifice some shots in two, man. I'm not well, sure what way, message that sends. If Harden is still here. We don't even know if he'll be here. At this point, listen, brother, at this point, you look at now, now, of course, a sign and trade is always an option. I don't love Chris Paul. It seems like if Harden were to go to Phoenix, that would have to be what they get in return. I don't know. They're going to get creative, but you know the free agency class is bad when James Harden is the headlining free agent. Outside of Harden is Kyrie, who you're not going to get. He's either going to Dallas for three plus one or L.A., most likely. Who does that leave you? It's 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 like uh, Malik Beasley, D'Angelo Russell, Karis LeVert, Jeremy Grant. You're not going to find a point guard that's going to replicate or come close to replicating Harden's production. Sounds like a championship core to me. <laughs> I, I think I think oh. the problem here is this: people are just saying, like, "Oh, you get you get the money back." No, you're still like below the cap, or or like you know, like you don't have money or resources left to allocate if Harden goes. Uh, because he he's a bird right acquisition for you. You, you. you were able to go over the cap to keep him, but you don't just be, you can't just sign guys outright because because he as he walks away. You are if you if you if James leaves, you for nothing that is. If he leaves for nothing and goes to Houston or wherever, you don't have means to improve. You're basically gonna be taking a gap year unless you get super creative with something. And by the way. I I even think a gap year could be overstated here because we can't say that and then look at the Miami Heat who are one win away from a finals appearance with literally a bunch of UDFAs and Jimmy Seven Butler. of them. Yeah. So, so and Dan Matabaya, of course. So credit to those guys. They've done an unbelievable work. But I don't necessarily think that we can write them off. But where is your room for improvement the, the, You know, this, this offseason? You don't really have a means to to doing that you're basically saying you know we can try to replicate what the heat are doing uh you know what are the odds of that working out actually one team can do that yeah and then you're like you're so like, hey joel we know you're 30 but you know mind taking a year off from like you know that that, that doesn't it, that doesn't make sense so i think your best foot forward might just be re-signing harden I don't think it's a, a foot a foot forward that fans want to see. I get there's a lot of volatility and variance to his game, but I don't know what your options are. And we can go back and we can re, we can you know relitigate the the Harden trade and whether that was the right guy to get. I think he, he's better than Tyrese Halliburton. I'm sorry, he is. Like, you know, what you don't agree? Okay, at, at this point in time. Oh, Brother, I love Tyrese. They were very similar in assists. Tyrese is a culture builder. He's young. He's more athletic. I think he's probably less of a bucket than Harden. But at this stage, I think he's more of a consistent scorer than Harden. Now, Harden is going to erupt and give you a 45 bomb against a good defense. But I don't know. In hindsight, it's just, it doesn't matter, though. The fact of the matter is Harden is the best teammate Embiid's ever had from a basketball standpoint. Getting him the rock, making the game easier for him when he's assertive, opening the game up for the guys around him. The thing that confuses me about Harden is, like, he talks so much about all I want to do is sacrifice. At this point in my career, it's about sacrifice. I want to sacrifice to win. I want to play the point guard role. Let's be honest. Harden probably can drop 30 a night at the expense of his teammates aren't going to do as well. 
And if he's expending himself that much, he's probably going to get hurt. He's, he's, he's got a track record of getting hurt when he has that big of a load. So you talk all this chop about you want to sacrifice, you want to make the game easier, and he did. He brought the assist title to Philly, helped deliver Embiid's MVP, Maxi 20 points per game, Tobias good efficiency all season. How come now, after the season, when you had some stinkers in the playoffs, now it's a problem? Now you want more freedom on the basketball court. Now you want to do a little bit more. Now, so it confuses me because if you bring Harden back and get a new coach, I think the coach uses a similar blueprint. We need you to play point, brother. You're a great facilitator. You make the game easier. I don't think a coach is going to tell Harden, well, okay, go take 20 shots. Don't worry about playmaking. No, we still need you to playmake. We still need the two-man game. And that's where it's like, okay, if you don't get Harden, what are you going to do for a point guard? You need a point guard. Maxie's not a point guard. If you keep PJ around, he needs a point guard. And B needs a point guard. You just need a point guard who can get to a bucket. You're not getting Dame most likely. Kyrie's gone. So then you're very limited. You, you, you either have to get a mid point guard and then hope to God Daryl Moy can get creative with Tobias and the other assets to bring in some wings and some hoopers. What if you, what if you sign and trade James to Houston and get – stuff back what do you get from houston jalen green they're not going to trade jalen green that's their future they drafted him early a couple of years ago they're not going to sacrifice that just to bring Harden back so we can fuck off and score 30 a game while they win 26 games houston's not ready to compete that's what confuses me they're not getting victor webanyama and a quarter of jalen green james harden and jabari smith isn't cracking top eight in the west i think they would be trading things to get a third a second guy like i don't know maybe carl so what are you gonna get from houston you're gonna get who who uh they're not trading alperin they're not trading Jalen green uh i mean i don't know what's going on with kevin porter jr but is that what you want in philly you want kevin porter jr in return uh, another two makeshift one who's kind of I'm like just, ball I'm dominant spitballing ideas and then maybe you flip that you flip that return and you know, for something else, and you move that down. There, 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 there is some degree of maneuverability. I don't. So they said there's an appetite for James around the league. I don't know what a sign and trade with Phoenix looks like. I don't know if you can make a sign and trade with Boston. I doubt Boston would do that. But let's say Boston implodes, they get swept, uh, they fire Missoula. Jalen Brown doesn't want to play in Boston. I mean, I don't know. Like stranger things have happened, but at this point. It just seems like the smartest thing to do, which the Sixers always get backed into these corners, is you retain James, 200 M's, four years. That's crazy. I don't know if that's what a team is going to pay him. I hope the Sixers don't pay him that. But you retain James. You maintain the backcourt of James and Tyrese. You keep Embiid happy. You get a coach who's better with the X's and O's. And then you try to trade Tobias and bolster the bench a little bit and then just hope that they have the mental fortitude to overcome the second round next season. And if they don't, then shit's going to hit the fan. That's when Embiid asks out Harden's 35, getting paid 39 mil a year. It's the same thing as the bank contract. It's the same thing as the Tobias contract. And then you got to start from scratch and build around Tyrese or something like that, which I don't know where that puts you in the East, but the East is still oh. wide open. It's oh, still wide open. Let's hold the brakes. Yeah. I, I I don't think they're gonna give James uh, that type of a contract. I, I just don't. I don't think they're gonna put themselves in that spot. I, th- I, I if I had to guess, I'm just guessing. I would think they're gonna see how the market plays out, and they're gonna say, "Okay, you go get yourself a two hundred million dollar deal," and and we'll see. We'll see if that actually happens. And if it does, okay, then you know you let them walk, and then it's whatever. You, you, you get creative. Um, I would I would have some significant doubts that that's really going to happen though that, that someone's going to give him two hundred million. I, I just don't I I don't I don't know what someone's going to see out of that. Like, what are you going to? How are you going to sell your ownership group on that? Uh, two hundred mil, not just the Sixers, but any team. Um, but even then, like I, you know, you said you know James was all about sacrifice, and then he wasn't. I think James was phenomenal for this team. Absolutely. For most of the, you know, most of the season. I think he, just, I think stats say he just put up the best point guard season in Sixers history. 
like literally it's what it is. He, he was phenomenal. Uh, he almost made my NBA third team, my all NBA third team. He missed it slightly, but I give him heavy consideration. Um, but I think his mindset was, I'm going to be a, a great teammate and, you know, take a step back uh, and see if it helps me get my goal. And if it doesn't, then I'm going to want my payday. And I think that's where, I think that's where the Sixers are now. Um, but, you know, they have worlds of things to figure out this offseason, starting with the head coach. And I think you had to ask the question, because we just we just laid it out, like, is Joel, can Joel be the guy? Like, can he be the guy on a team that is going to get to the conference finals, is going to win a championship? You know, it, and if he can be the guy, if you think he's skilled enough to be the guy, is he, has he been used the right way as he's progressed these last three years? Has he been used the right way where he can, where it's sustainable in the playoffs? Because, you know, I think Joel's knee was in, was a factor in all this because he like, wasn't able to blow by Al Horford in, in coverage the way that he was in the regular season, and he just wasn't able to move the way that he usually was, and his jumper was flat. Also, there's three guys on him. There's two or three guys converging on him at all times. It's hard for him to see or shoot because there's bodies everywhere. So, you know, the way that he's used in the middle of the floor raises questions. You know, this was supposed to be the year and it didn't happen. And so now you have to reevaluate things. But I think you have to start once you, you know, once you hire a coach, you have to start with reevaluating how is Joel being used? Can he be, you know, what is the ceiling of a, of a, of a team where he is the, you know, averaging 33 game, you know? And that isn't to say Joel isn't skilled enough or that he's fake or he's not good enough. He's transcendently amazing. It's that his particular skill set and his body of work lends itself to some difficult game planning sometimes. I just think they need someone to take the last shot. And whether that be Maxi and Beater Harden, they have to figure that out. And that's part of scheme. You have to be able to scheme your best player to get the ball, get open so they can take the last shot. And it's an efficient look. It's a good look. Miami does it with Jimmy. It works with Jimmy. Denver does it. It works. The Lakers do it. If they need a bucket, they can scheme up a bucket. It just feels like regular season it worked. Against Brooklyn it worked. But when the defense was able to key in, the paint was packed, whatever, the Celtics took the two-man game away, they were scrambling. And it was like their best shot when they needed a bucket was what the defense gave to them. And that was a corner three, courtesy of Melton, Yang, Tucker, whatever. When in reality... Your best players have to take those shots, and they have to make them. Boston did that. Game seven, Brown and Tatum combined for 38 in the first half. Game six, Tatum took and made all their late shots. Boston rolled with their guys. Philly, however, they took what the defense gave to them. You have to bring that to the defense. You have to scheme something up where your best players can get those looks. And they have to figure out who's going to take that shot. Harden bailed the Sixers out a couple of times against Boston where he took those late shots. And that's not a knock on Embiid to make that great pass out of the double, whatever. Uh, but some things for Embiid to work on, just recognition of the double teams and getting rid of that when he has to. Harden, if they retain him, he's got to work on consistency from a game-to-game -game basis. There's a lot of stuff, but Krell, it's approaching 8.30 p.m. Eastern time. I have a Nikola Jokic masterclass to watch. I have to watch the Lakers get bounced in a little bit. So listen, wrap it up for me, brother. Brock, as usual, you are awesome. This has been the feed to Embiid. Uh, I am Austin Krell. And as always, thank you, everybody, for tuning in. Brock, take it away on your stream. I really said my piece, brother. I appreciate you coming on, everybody. I thank you for joining me. And stay tuned. I'll probably be live tomorrow, and then we'll solidify the live stream schedule. So everybody... Thank you. I appreciate you. Stay safe. Take care. stepping back and stroking to Bogdanovich, thinking about a three. There it is.